We pray with you. God, we come to your word with humble and open hearts, asking that you would speak to us through it. As we enter into this new, uh, this new series on the Exodus, I'm just blown away, God, by how current and relevant some of these issues are. So speak to our hearts and may it lead us into a deeper and more meaningful relationship with you as we walk in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I found this, uh, this story of a guy, his name was uh, Archer Alexander. He was born just outside of Richmond, Virginia, 1813, when this guy was just a boy. His master, born into slavery, his master sold him and he was separated from his father, whom he never saw again. When he was 18 years old, he was chosen by his master to leave again for Missouri, separating from his mother and the rest of his family. This guy married a fellow slave named Louisa. He had 10 children and was eventually sold to his wife's master, a Christian man who actually believed and said that slavery was God's divine law. This Christian man even sold some of Archer's children for misbehaving. Christian man. I don't know about that. He was later accused of feeding information to Union troops, and rather than stand trial, this guy decided to escape, and he was easily caught and brought back. But his desire for freedom was undeniably strong. He was said to have climbed out a very high window, avoiding hunting dogs, slipping away again a second time to St. Louis, where he was eventually hired by this guy who was a great name, William Greenleaf Elliott an ordained pastor out of Harvard Divinity School who was a guy who had been working for the emancipation of slaves and who remained Archer's friend for the rest of his life. Now, while this guy, Elliot, was working for Archer's emancipation, he sent a letter to his master inquiring about purchasing his freedom. The master, instead of granting the requests, actually sent more slave catchers and dogs to, uh, to catch him, which they did, and they beat him almost to death and threw him in prison. But while he was waiting for transportation back to the plantation of his original owner, this man, Elliot, had Archer freed because they charged these slave catchers with a serious crime. His wife and one of his daughters were finally able to escape and join him in St. Louis, and finally in 1865, on January 11th, all the slaves in the state of Missouri were freed. This statue right here is in Washington, D.C. In 1876, this was built, called the Emancipation Memorial. It features Abraham Lincoln, the emancipator, and our own Archer Alexander, right there. A man who battled his entire life for freedom. Then President Ulysses S. Grant was actually in attendance the day the statue was unveiled. And when this man finally earned his freedom, he's quoted as saying this. He said, now I'm free. I thank the good Lord that he delivered me from all my troubles and that I lived to see this day. His story is a story of slavery to freedom. The story of the exodus of the ancient Israelites is also a story of slavery to freedom. For the Jews, this is the story that defines their very existence. This rescue operation that made them God's very own people. And so the Exodus is a story that shows that there's a God who delivers, there's a God who 
rescues and who saves. And so exodus simply means exit or departure. And like Archer Alexander's journey, it's this epic journey of God's people from slavery to freedom. And so when I was thinking about this, you know, I I look at our job in this series maybe as finding our own journey in the midst of their hearing about their journey, to incorporate their story and to find our own story within it. And I think that's not going to be so hard to do when we hear how this moves on. So let's listen to the conclusion of today's text, which follows the one that Jennifer read from Exodus 2, 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, plastered it with bitumen and pitch, put the child in it, and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. And so the Exodus story begins, as a lot of epic stories begin, kind of right in the middle. We might remember, for those of us that have been around the last couple of weeks, Joseph was the first of his family members to enter into Egypt. Whereby God, uh, God's doing, he becomes this powerful prince in the court of Pharaoh. The rest of Joseph's family eventually makes it. There were about 70 of them at the time. They make up this large family that was just becoming a nation as God had promised Abraham. And so they enter Egypt because of the severe famine and the threat of starvation, and that's how they got there. They were welcomed by Joseph and by Pharaoh, and they prospered well there. God had kept the promise given to Abraham that they would be blessed, that they would become a great nation, and this number of 70 people quickly multiplies over a few hundred years that they reside in Egypt right before we get to the start of today's text. And then everything changed. Joseph has since died. A new Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, who did not remember him. And with this new regime, we see Israel go from a place of prosperity to a place of slavery. This new Pharaoh felt no sense of obligation whatsoever to Joseph or to the foreigners that were living In his land. And this is the progression. First, the Egyptians, they fear the Israelites. Then they begin to hate them. And in their fear and in their hatred, they actually subject them to slavery. And so, this Pharaoh, like most dictators, he's fearful, he's cruel, he's power hungry, he's extremely paranoid. Despite his far superior military strength, despite the fact that Israel had lived among them in peace for hundreds of years, 
he's worried that the Israelites are growing enough in numbers that they could side with one of Egypt's enemies and unite with them in war against Egypt. And so blaming ethnic minorities is the easy way out. Someone needed to pay. And Pharaoh plays the race card. Enslaving an entire group of minority people, it solved two major problems for Egypt. It's immigrant problem and it's labor problem. We heard Pastor Jennifer read that they built two of Egypt's great cities. Pharaoh resented God's people. But what he didn't know was this. The big mistake was that in fighting God's people, Pharaoh was picking a fight with Israel's God, otherwise known as a big mistake. (laughs) Pharaoh's two big mistakes might be able to be easily said like this. Pharaoh rejected God's promises, and he resisted God's plan. And so the Israelites were a people that were made for God's glory. This is what the Bible says, that they were created to serve God in freedom. By enslaving them, Pharaoh was denying them the ability to fulfill their calling. And so God had promised Abraham land. Egypt was never the place that the Israelites were to permanently settle. Pharaoh claimed to be the incarnate son of Re, who was the sun God, and by subjecting them to slavery, Pharaoh was saying to them, I'm your new Lord. I'm your new God. And so slavery in Egypt was really just state-sponsored terrorism. The Israelites were subjected to horrible brutality. They're now seen as Pharaoh's property, just like Archer and Alexander in my first opening illustration. And so they're organized into large work groups. They're forced into completing these massive building projects for Pharaoh. They're literally beaten into submission by their taskmasters. And I was looking at this, and it's a great question to ask. We all would ask it. Why does does God allow for this incredible suffering of his people? And the answer really is not an easy one. It's not really a popular one either. Their suffering was actually used by God to show them their own need for salvation. This is what Exodus is trying to say. That it's their slavery that actually drove them to freedom, toward freedom. This is what being convicted of our own sin is supposed to do. It's supposed to show us our own need for deliverance. And so Israel had grown so comfortable in a foreign land. It was not the land that God had promised. It was not the land that God wanted them settled in. And so when I was looking at this, I noticed that the great rabbis of the Jewish tradition and the best of our Christian scholars, they ask a really important question. They say, without the crisis of slavery in Egypt, would Israel have ever left? It's a great question. I don't know. The Bible has this redemptive purpose in this suffering of God's people in mind. Because it was the suffering that showed them that they needed to get They needed to stop assimilating into Egyptian culture. They needed to stop living Egyptian ways. They needed to stop worshiping Egyptian gods. It's their enslavement that reminded them that God had made them, had created them for so much more. And so it kind of made me think about things in the world, how many people are struggling all over the world for their freedom. We could choose a lot of different countries as an illustration. I I was currently thinking about Venezuela was on my mind the dictatorship of Nicolas Maduro, handpicked by his predecessor. And when you look at this, on a, this, there's such a thing as a freedom scale. Has anyone ever heard of this? 
and look them up. On the freedom scale of 0 to 100, Venezuela scores like 30. 0 being the least free, 100 being the most free. In other words, these are not a free people. And so we see this violent struggle going on there as people are willing to die so that others can live free. Closer to home, here in our own nation, we're struggling with symbols of oppression and racism and slavery. Just think about the current issue of the statue of General Robert E. Lee or the covering of General Stonewall Jackson. These generals represent a small piece of this country's tragic history of slavery, and it doesn't matter what our opinions are of the removal of the historical pieces. The fact remains that Christians assert that human beings were created by God for freedom, and that God is a God who will actively work to free his people. And so Pharaoh chose two strategies in dealing with the Israelites. Slavery was the first, and death was the second. He devised this evil plan of selective genocide, ordering these Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys so that these Baby boys could not grow up into men who would turn and fight against him. Just complete fear and paranoia. These brilliant midwives act uh, in a great act of uh, civil disobedience. They outwit the Pharaoh. And they preserve innocent lives. They just couldn't get there fast enough. The women were giving birth so quickly. You know. And so Archer Alexander, he found himself a deliverer in William Greenleaf Elliot. The question is, in scripture it says, who is going to be Israel's deliverer. Who would deliver them? Now we come to the birth of Moses. Picture this scenario in your mind, because this is what, really, this is what it must have been like. Can you imagine this impossible scenario? Moses' father and mother, they fall in love. And they have to ask themselves this question. This is hard to think about. Should we even have children? They have to ask themselves that question. Should we even have children? Do we want to bring a child into this world? At best, slavery. At worst, being drowned in the Nile. Archer Alexander, he decided to risk. He had children, ten of them, most of whom he never actually even really knew. What an impossible choice this young couple faced. Like Archer Alexander, they choose to risk. They start a family. A child is born. And what Moses, uh, you know, what is Moses' mother going to do? Pharaoh would give him a direct order. All male babies cast into the Nile and drowned. Simple. Three months, this courageous mother manages to hide baby Moses. She can no longer hide him. And in this just startling act of defiance, and in a weird sort of way, if you think about it, Being obedient to Pharaoh's command, she casts baby Moses into the Nile. This is a weird, I think we're supposed to think about that. It's defiance, but she's also doing exactly what he said. But the difference is that she did everything she could possibly do to protect her baby. She placed him in a basket, waterproofed it, and with love and prayer and faith, she sets it afloat. On the surface, she's abandoning her child, but really she's abandoning her child to God's care. And the irony here is that Moses was probably never safer in all of his life than he was in that basket floating down the Nile. This is what scripture wants us to understand, because listen to this, the Hebrew word used for basket, it's actually really significant here. It's only used in one other place 
in the entire scriptures. Anyone care to venture a guess? The little basket that baby Moses was in, what's the other one place that that Hebrew word might be used in scripture? Ark. Yep. Noah's Ark. The only other time that word is used. And as Noah passed through those waters, so too would Moses pass through the deadly waters. Because God was captaining the boat. And so not only was God with the baby Moses in the ark, but also at work, if you look at the life of Moses' sister and Pharaoh's daughter, God has a sense of humor. God floats baby Moses right to the doorstep of the most powerful man in the world, the man who's trying to kill him. Miriam, his sister, tasked with babysitting and watching him float away, follows him as he floated down the river. This little baby is the direct challenge to the most powerful man in the world. And yet Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and immediately knows he's a Hebrew boy. Pharaoh's daughter, what is she required to do? Take baby Moses out of that basket and toss him in. The decree of her own father, and she can't do it. She can't do it. God's clearly at work in her heart, too. In another act of direct defiance to her own father, she chooses to adopt this baby instead of drowning And then, as if that weren't enough proof that God has some big plans for baby Moses, Moses' own sister recommends the baby's real mother for the open nursing position. This is crazy. (laughs) Imagine the joy of Moses' mother and father. Not only is he alive, he's well. She even got paid by Pharaoh to raise her own son. Like, the Bible's got a sense of humor. You've got to look a little little deep, but it's there. Moses would not grow up a slave, but rather a son in Pharaoh's court. It's right from within the terrorist's own home. This is amazing to think about, that God is actually going to prepare Moses to deliver his people from slavery, right from within the house of Pharaoh. And so, you know, we look at this, and I I find it to be really amazing stuff. God saves Moses so that God could save the Israelites. That's why Moses is saved. God has planned big plans for this little baby. That God was planning this massive rescue operation for the people of Israel. Every epic journey of deliverance needs a savior. And so Moses was to be God's deliverer. But when we look at the Bible, we always read it theologically. And when we do, we see that the Exodus from beginning to end is really just a very God-centered book, God acting in human history to bring about salvation for his people. And so God is acting here. That Moses was born a Savior, but not the Savior. And so the Exodus is pointing us to something in the future. The ultimate meaning of the Exodus points us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. That Moses would eventually save his people. Eventually they'd be delivered from slavery in the hand of the Egyptians. But he wouldn't deliver them from the problem that was even more powerful, even more uh, bigger than Egypt. God uh, would not use Moses to deliver the people from themselves, from their own sin. The people of Israel for centuries would long for this promised Messiah that would come. They longed for another Moses, one that they said would be greater than even the prophet Moses, who would ultimately deliver them and set them free. 
And so just look at just a couple of parallels between Moses and Jesus at their birth. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior, but he had to be rescued from his enemies. Murderous plot to kill him, did he not? Like Moses under Pharaoh's thumb, Jesus was also born under a death sentence. Herod the Great refused to tolerate any other king in his kingdom. Had it out for Jesus right away. And so Herod, like Pharaoh, he started secretly, he asked the wise men where the king was to be born so that he could go worship him. It started small. And when that failed, just like Pharaoh, Herod stepped up his game, ordering his soldiers to murder every baby boy in Bethlehem. But God's plan moves forward. It triumphs over evil. Jesus, like Moses, is saved from death. And here may be the most interesting part. It was the most interesting part to me. Jesus is delivered from the hand of Herod. His mother and father, they have to flee for safety, just like Moses flee for safety in the basket. Where did the baby Jesus flee for safety? Anybody? Egypt. Egypt. This is crazy. Egypt? Really? <laughs> of all places in the world? Really? The baby Jesus finds safety in Egypt? This doesn't make sense. God uses Egypt, an enemy empire, to protect the Savior of the world. Just as God would use Egypt to protect, to educate, to train Moses, all to liberate his people from slavery. That God was at work for the salvation of his people down to the smallest detail. We see these connections, they're just they're mind-boggling. Working for salvation from the very beginning. And so when I was thinking about it, I thought maybe, maybe Moses' mother was kind of this image that shows us maybe a little bit about what God might desire from us. More than anything, she trusted God with the most precious thing in the world to her, her son. When she placed that baby in the basket, she seals in her heart there with this baby. She entrusts this tiny heart to the care of a faithful God who was faithful to save. Do we, this really made me think, do we believe that God is working out a plan for salvation for us and for the world? Pharaoh rejected God's promises. Pharaoh resisted God's plans. But what we're going to see in this series is that Pharaoh is no match for God. And God's people will be set free. Do we trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God like Moses' mother? Are we convicted for our own need for a Savior in Jesus? There's a couple different aspects of this. One's really personal and individual, and it's where we learn to recognize our own need for deliverance from all the different things that enslave us. And then there's this corporate, larger human issue that human beings were created by God for freedom. That God is at work not only in our lives pointing us to his son, Jesus, but also God is at work in the world that God made, that God loves dearly, working for justice and peace and freedom. And that the pharaohs of today, this is a big warning for the pharaohs of the world of today. If I was one of them, I'd be nervous if I read Exodus. Because the Exodus points us to a liberating freedom in Jesus Christ, our true deliverer. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we see you at work in the incredible story found in your word. 
We find you at work in our hearts as you point us to freedom in Christ. We also see you at work in the world working for justice and peace and freedom. God, we pray for all those who find themselves bound by addictions of many kinds. We also pray, God, for those that are bound by oppression. You are a God of deliverance. May we be a small but important part of it.